then as our sermon text, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, as we begin uh, the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of God. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, as we begin uh, to dive in to the book of Romans, and as I seek to unfold it, and as we together as a congregation seek to understand it and to, uh, to take it in and then to live by it and to believe its message. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that you might be present through the preaching of this gospel just as you were through the, the words and the preaching of Paul and that through the preaching of this gospel that we would be encouraged and built up together in our faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I say, uh, we are beginning here our next major study which is the book of Romans. And when we begin a new major series, I often like to ask uh, or to answer the question, why this particular book? Because, as you know, we're not following any kind of uh, any kind of prescribed order. And so when I choose a book, I like to tell the reason that I did choose it. In other words, what is the value uh, of studying this book? Apart from the obvious answer that it, like the other 66 canonical books, is uh, the inspired word of God. Well, let me say something about its importance and its value. One of the things we must realize, especially as Protestants, 
but even going back before the Reformation, before there ever was a Protestants, is that Christians have always valued this book in a very special way. In fact, I'm willing to guess that you, like me, in your own Christian life and your own reading of the New Testament, have come to really value this book over the years. And that God, likewise, in his own way, has used the book of Romans to do many mighty things. Let me give you just two examples. It was from a verse in the book of Romans that led to the conversion and then the mighty ministry of St. Augustine or Augustine in the early church. Or another instance, it was Martin Luther's lectures on Romans. I believe it was in 1515. And if you know your history, the Reformation had not begun by then. It, it began in 1517. Well, there Luther was at Wittenberg uh, teaching an exposition on the book of Romans that led to his great, uh, his great uh, discovery about the gospel from that book, that a sinner is justified by faith and not by works of the law, in contrast to the teaching of Rome. And he was a member of that church, the Roman Catholic Church. And so it was the book of Romans, especially that led to the dawn of the Reformation through the teaching and preaching of Martin Luther. And then he famously uh, nailed those 95 theses to the wall in 1517. But if you go back to the earliest days of the church, in the days when they were forming the canon, it seems clear that those who did so felt the same way, that there was something special about the book or the letter of Romans because they placed it first. If you think about the order of the books in the Bible, which is something that does have value, you have the four Gospels, you have the record of the early church in Acts, and then when you begin an account of the apostles' writings and letters, Romans stands at the beginning. And we have to think that there's a reason for this. I'm not alone in saying that. The reason certainly was not this, that it was the oldest of the epistles. We know that it wasn't. When they placed it first, they did not do so haphazardly. They did so for a very important reason. They did so because... The, the epistle to the Romans was the leading epistle, the epistle of first importance, the one that set forth the truths and the doctrines of the gospel most clearly and most persuasively. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the church was given the wisdom by the Holy Ghost to realize it is first in importance. Or as Robert Haldane says in his commentary, it has been placed first in order among them on account of its excellence. Well, that's my answer to the question why we're studying Romans. Because it has so much value and so much importance to the life of the church. And it's about time that we began to study it ourselves. But then that leads me to ask this. What was Paul's reason for writing it? What was he seeking to accomplish and to instill in his readers? Well, he tells us this in his opening section, as well as in chapter 15, which we also read earlier. He speaks of his desire to visit them, but of his being providentially hindered. Most think he wrote this epistle sometime during his third missionary journey, while he was in the process of collecting the offering for the saints in Jerusalem, which he mentions in chapter 15. So that explanation makes sense. But obviously, before he ever reached Rome, where he was eventually imprisoned and there uh, wrote his prison epistles. And so he tells 
the Romans in chapter 1 and chapter 15 of his desire to be with them, of his desire to preach this glorious gospel to them in person, verses 13 through 15. But for now, he says, the letter must suffice until I am able to be with you and to preach this message and this gospel. I will unfold it. I will expound it in this letter. For now, his longing to impart some spiritual gift so that they may be established and be encouraged in their mutual faith, as he states in verses 11 and 12, must occur through the writing and the reception of this letter. So Paul wishes to preach this glorious gospel to them and thereby to establish and encourage them in the faith. That's why he wrote Romans. Not so much to evangelize them as to establish and to encourage. And that is what we might hope to gain as well in our own study of the book of Romans. A clear and a full view of the gospel by which we ourselves can be hope, can hope to be established and encouraged in the faith. Well, here's my next question. What can we say? And, and as you see, I'm just introducing the book in this first sermon. What can we say about the church in Rome? Well, we know that Rome was the center of the ancient world, uh, but it is the conditions in the Roman church that is really important to consider in our understanding of the epistle. It will, it will explain the nature and the issues that Paul is addressing. There was, as you know, in the ancient world, a dispersion of the Jews throughout the Roman Empire. Any city you went to, you would find them, and you would find synagogues in those cities, uh, which became an evangelistic strategy for the apostles, if you read the book of Acts. And it made evangelism, in one sense, easy for them. Wherever they went, they would visit the uh, synagogue, and they had uh, a ready opportunity to open the Old Testament scriptures, and then to set forth the fulfillment of those scriptures in their preaching to the Jews. And as a result, many of those Jews uh, were converted and became the nucleus of the early church. But there were also in those settings and elsewhere in those towns, Gentiles who would be converted through their preaching as well. And as a result of this, the early church and uh, Rome was no exception, was mixed in character. It was composed of Jews and Gentiles. And you see him alluding to this already in the first verses of the epistle. It becomes a major theme the way the Jew and the Gentile were to relate to one another in the early church. But it also, since this was something new in the life of the people of God, it presented certain problems that the early church had to deal with. How to get both groups to view themselves as one body without distinction. And so much of what Paul says in this letter is addressed to both groups in order to help them to see this. At one point, he speaks to the Gentile. In another, he speaks to the Jews, chapter 2, chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then there are times when he addresses them both, either condemning them equally, chapter 3, or commending the faith to them equally, chapters, uh, the end of 3 through 5, and so on. There are also passages where he looks at the two groups and he commends uh, their duty one to another. In one sense... Uh, each held a certain prejudice towards the other group. The Jews felt the Gentiles had no place, or at least a lesser place, 
Whereas the Gentiles tended to glory in the fact that God through the gospel was rejecting the Jews as a nation and as a people. And each of them falsely were boasting in the flesh. And so he deals with both of these throughout and seeks to bring harmony around the gospel, which they fully shared in common. But then let me ask this next. What is the great theme of the letter? In the next point, we'll consider the overall argument. But here, let us consider the one main argument of the whole book, the great purpose and theme that we find in the book of Romans. And there's no question but that the great theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. Or as he states in verse one, the gospel of God, or as he puts it in verse 17, the gospel of Christ. And there's no doubt but that these two things are one and the same. The gospel of God is the gospel of Christ. An announcement and a proclamation, not of what man has done or what man needs to do for salvation, but rather what God has done in order to save man. And it is this gospel which Paul says in verse 15 that he's so eager to preach and to unfold and to expound and to explain to them in person as he did whenever he visited the various cities throughout the Roman Empire. But for now, he does so through the letter. As I say, the book of Romans is Paul's preaching of the gospel in written form until he was able to do so in person. You see, already in the introduction, he's telling us what it is, verses 1 through 4, and then especially verses 16 and 17. The gospel has to do with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, verse verse 1, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of from the dead. The gospel of God concerns his son is coming into the world his resurrection and so on. We'll see that next time. And it is in him that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The Greek, he says, Jew and Gentile, one in the same salvation. It is the one and only way any man can ever hope to be saved, not by his own righteousness or his own law keeping, but only by that righteousness God supplies, the righteousness of God. The gift which we receive by faith, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Here indeed, Paul says, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, Jew and Greek alike, you and me. And anyone who ever hopes to be saved and to stand before the judgment seat of God on the last day. And it is in that sense, in terms of uh, resolving man's fundamental dilemma, that we are all sinners and that each of us on the last day will stand before the bar of God's judgment. You remember Luther's question is the question that we all ask. How can I, a sinner, be reconciled to God? That's the question that Romans is answering. And it is in that sense that we can view Romans as a legal document 
as a document which tells us how it is that we as guilty sinners can hope to face the judgment and the justice of God. So much of the letter bears this out for its great theme, the gospel of justification is a legal category. By justification, we mean to be declared righteous. How can a sinner before the righteous judgment of God be declared righteous? Well, that's the question that the book of Romans answers, even as it sets aside the false answers, such as by keeping the law. Well, in speaking of justification, we ought to realize that justification is an action by the judge with regard to the guilty. In other words, as I said, it's something God does. And we ought to realize that God, this is what Paul begins with, in fact, God is within his rights to condemn the sinner, each and every one of us. There's nothing unjust in this fact, if God should send us all to hell. But the amazing thing that Paul was so eager to announce and to proclaim to these Roman Christians is that God justifies the one who has faith, the guilty sinners, the guilty sinner. He declares him righteous by the righteousness of Christ imputed to him and received by faith alone. And so look, for instance, again, seeing how this is the action of the judge at what Paul says in Romans chapter three, verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. He's speaking of the cross that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The action of this judge with regard to the guilty in justifying him is a just action. It is not an unjust action. He is not unjust in justifying the sinner. He is both just and the justifier. Here he is acting as the judge of all and he is acting justly, Paul is saying. He doesn't set aside his justice and justification, but he upholds it. Or look at what he says at the end of chapter 8. Verses 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he? Who condemns it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You see, it's the same thing. It's the same argument. The gospel of God, the action of this judge, it is God who justifies, he says. And therefore, if God is for us, God seen as the judge of all and the only one who has any right to judge us. He who renders the verdict, the one who justifies if he has justified us freely by his grace, who is there to condemn? Who then can ever separate us from this love? And how now can God ever be against us? But having answered those four questions, let me uh, answer now a fifth and final one, though this is, uh, I think, the bulk of the sermon. And that is the general flow of the letter, the overall argument, which I want us to have some sense of before we begin to look at it in particular. But let me begin here by dispelling what is a false analysis. I think at one point in my Christian life, I even believed it. In fact, I think I might have put this uh, as the answer in a theology exam uh, when I was being ordained. And that just tells you how common it is, even in reformed settings. But uh, I have to admit this false analysis even then struck me as utterly confusing 
And ultimately, I realize as I study the book of Romans more and more, one which is untrue and misleading. I want to set it aside in that sense, but let me first define it. Uh, Again, I think this is the most common way that Romans is described. Chapters 1 through 4, or perhaps chapters 1 through 5, justification. And then chapters 5 through 8, or 6 through 8, sanctification. And then we could go on from there, but I just want to stop there and say that that is confusing and misleading. uh, And it really doesn't tell the truth about the book of Romans. Again, justification and then sanctification. It doesn't make any sense of what Paul is saying in the book of Romans. If you're working from that framework, you will read it and be confused. Because the reality is that we find Paul still speaking of justification in chapter 8, every bit as much as he was in chapter 5. It is clearly the great theme that he is unfolding and expounding at that point. There's no question. But then you keep going and you read in chapter 10. The great theme of chapter 10, again, is justification. What does that tell us? Well, remember how he begins. He tells us at the beginning, chapter uh, 1, verses 16 through 17, especially what his theme is. It's the righteousness of God, which is revealed to the one who has faith. Justification is the great theme of the letter. And so Paul isn't just describing justification for a few chapters, and then he sets it aside and moves on to sanctification. Again, that is the false analysis. But rather it is him unfolding this great theme throughout. Constantly working out the same doctrine in different ways. So let me give what I believe is the true analysis under several headings. First, we have the introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, what I would call the general introduction. I think everyone's agreed about that, where Paul introduces himself as an apostle. He expresses his desire to be with them, and then he defines his theme, the great theme, which, as I say, he works out through the whole letter, not just the first five chapters. And that is, again, the gospel of justification by faith alone. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul isn't just talking about that in chapters 1 through 5. He's talking about it still in chapters 6 through 8. He's still dealing with that righteousness of God received by faith in chapters 9 through 11. The Jew and the Greek. And even still in the practical portion, chapters 12 through 15, as I hope to show you, how it is we work out this doctrine in the life of the church. Well, this is how he uh, proceeds to unfold this thought. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 18 and following to the end of chapter 1, he speaks of the wrath of God, he says, which is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is his purpose in this? Having just stated the gospel in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he begins, uh, let us say, with the bad news. Well, here he's dealing with the Gentiles in chapter 1. And the first thing he wants to do is to expose the Gentiles under the justice and the judgment of God. To show them that they're not free from the charge of condemnation just because they're not Jews and did not possess the law. That they, in other words, did not need this gospel. That the gospel was something for Jews, but not for Gentiles. 
No, Paul says, the Gentile cannot be cleared of the charge of condemnation because he did not possess the law. In other words, on the grounds of ignorance, Paul says that you suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifested in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. The Gentile is one, that's you and me, by the way, who's under condemnation. And so the argument runs to the end of the chapter. Gentiles are not free of blame. They stand justly condemned before before a righteous God. But then in chapter two, he shows how the Jews fare no better because they possess the law. Oh, they had it, but did they keep it? Well, in that chapter, he answers the question. No, they didn't. And so the Jew, in a like manner, was not able to claim that they didn't need this gospel either because they were Jews and possessed the law. That was a false solution and a false analysis of the problem. No, because they had it but did not keep it. They were in the same position as the Gentiles. Chapter 2. But that is not to say, as he begins in chapter 3, That is not to say that there was no advantage to being a Jew in the purpose and the plan of God. What advantage was there? Well, much in every way, Paul says. But still, it wasn't enough. Not nearly. Being a Jew carried many advantages, but it wasn't enough to save him. And so altogether, Paul concludes, Jew and Gentile alike fall under condemnation because they're all under sin. Chapter 3, verses 9 Through 11. What then are we better than they? Not at all. That is as Jews. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God and so on and so forth. There is the dilemma. Jew and Gentile alike, which leads to the ultimate conclusion with respect to the law. Which the Jews possessed in the written code and the Gentile possessed by nature. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law is not the solution. It is what highlights the dilemma. And so we know that the law was no help. It provided no basis for justification or salvation before God. It, rad, it, it led rather, excuse me, only to a knowledge of sin. By which Paul says we are held accountable to God and thus we know. Verse 20. Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law I discover that I'm a sinner. But having set the dilemma before them as plainly as he could and as fully as he could, Jew and Gentile alike, entirely abasing the pride of man, Jew and Gentile, there is no grounds of boasting before God, Paul says. He robs men of every fantasy and illusion that somehow he might become his own savior. And by establishing alike for all their need for the gospel, Paul proceeds beginning in chapter 3, verse 21. To express the true grounds and the only way of salvation. Chapter 3 verse 21 through 31. 
There he begins to unfold the gospel. There he shows us God's method of salvation, God's method of justification, the gospel of God. Not that of the law, he says, but that of grace. Grace as it is found in Jesus Christ on the cross and which is received by faith alone. Here is, he says, the one and only way of salvation for Jew and Gentile alike, verses 28 through 30. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith. That's the Jew and the uncircumcised through faith, the Gentile. One way of salvation, which they shared in common. One method by which God justifies the guilty apart from the law. But lest someone should say this is something new, that God was here doing something in the gospel different than what he did in the Old Testament. Paul proves in chapter four that this is not true, that what God is doing now, the gospel, his method of justification in chapter three, verse 21 through 31 is what he's always been doing. And so he asked the question, in essence, especially to the Jew, how was Abraham saved, Father Abraham? And what about David? Well, if you look at the Old Testament and Paul supplies quotations from the Old Testament, we discover that both men, by their own testimony, it's important to stress that not by our testimony or Paul's, but by their own testimony, both men were saved by faith, not by works of the law. Both men knew the blessing of forgiveness as expressed, for instance, in the Psalms and especially the penitential Psalms. Psalm 32, for instance, which Paul quotes what it was to have the righteousness of faith and not of works. The blessing of having our sin pardoned before a righteous God. And what Paul says from that chapter and that argument appealing to the Old Testament is that that places them, the saints of the Old Testament, in the same category as ourselves. The religion of the Old and the New Testament is one and the same. We are guilty sinners who are justified by faith alone. But having established this truth from Scripture, he begins in chapter 5 to work out the doctrine. It's all so glorious, he says. Look at what it leads to. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, and on and on he goes. You see, he's working out the doctrine. Do you understand what an incredible privilege it is to be justified in this way? This gospel, he says, going on to the second part uh, of this section, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It's the most amazing thing, the most amazing display of love you'll ever see or consider, chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And on and on he goes. Is there anything more wonderful than the gospel? Than God's method of salvation? That God the judge should reconcile the sinner. Through his own death. But then in chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 in the next section. He looks on it on a more global level. In terms of the whole history of humanity. 
It all goes back to Adam, he says, and the fact that we are sinners and thus liable to judgment can ultimately be traced to his sin, that is Adam's sin, and our participation in it. The fact, in other words, that we are his children and his heirs, that we are children, sons and daughters of Adam. By his one sin, Paul says, Adam brought in condemnation and death. There is the ultimate explanation of the dilemma. Yes, but thank God, he says, there's another side to this. There is another Adam or federal head, Paul tells us. Just as one man brought about condemnation and death to all by his one sin, so also Jesus Christ brought about justification and life by his obedience. Chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, just as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. In other words, once you see that man's ruin is in connection to one man, Adam, it becomes easier to see how salvation is equally found in one man, the second Adam. The fate of humanity is ultimately connected to each. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. Either you are under condemnation or you are justified. But following this, in chapter 6, he begins to explore the, the objections to this doctrine, especially that of the Jews. To this gospel, one of pure grace, the objection was raised in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Is the gospel our license to live a life of sin and disobedience? Because it's a gospel of grace. Because God justifies the ungodly. Well, Paul says this. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? And on and on he goes. In other words, and he'll explore this throughout the chapter. To be in Christ, which he just described at the end of chapter 5. To be in Christ as opposed to being in Adam means that we are not servants of sin, but that we have now died to sin. Because to be in Christ means that we have participated with him in his death to sin on the cross. And how can we now serve that to which we have died? That's his answer to the objection. We are now rather alive to God in Christ Jesus, and so we live to him. Our lives must therefore be lives of righteousness and holiness. There's no other way, you see, to understand the doctrine, what it means to participate with Christ in his death to sin, being in him. Justification doesn't lead to careless living, Paul is saying. It rather frees us from the thing that constrained us most, namely sin and guilt. But then in chapter 7, he takes up another objection, which he states in verse 7. What shall we say then is the law sin? In other words, was the law the problem? And there he tells us the problem is not the law. He says the problem is me. Certainly not, he says. Verse 7. The law was not the problem. The problem is me. It's that I am so sinful that I cannot deal with the law, something that is good, without turning it into something that is bad. And so obviously I need something else. Something which can actually free me from this awful dilemma. The dilemma once more is sin. Verse 13. Has then, uh, has then what is good become death to me? Again, the law certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through that which is good. 
Yes, but sin is precisely what Christ has dealt with. And thus he says in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And, and on and on he goes. He says that Christ, if you read those verses, has come to deal with sin in a way that the law never could. And then if he has, as he says in verse 1, then there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now what this means is not once more that we are free to walk according to the desires of the flesh, verses 5 through 8. It rather means that we have been set free from the flesh and its desires. And because we are now Christians who possess the Holy Spirit, we have the power to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And thus to mortify the deeds of the flesh, verses 9 through 13. What is more, now that he brings out uh, the theme of the Holy Spirit, he tells us about his blessed ministry in us. The Spirit is the one, he tells us, who offers his testimony to our spirits, assuring us that we are the sons of God, verses 14 through 17. He is the one who helps us to bear afflictions and even to pray, verses 18 through 27. But the greatest thing he says in all this, and again, see how he's still working out this one theme of justification, comes next in chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. That we know that all things work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. In that verse, Paul unfolds the way all of this, everything he has been describing, God's method of justification is according to God's purpose. And if that is so, then it means that man is unable to undo what God has done or intends to do. In other words, if all this is a matter ultimately of the plan and the purpose of God, then it is something that is absolutely certain. It is something that is beyond doubt. The gospel rightly understood, Paul is saying, once we've cleared away the objections, is something that gives the believer an invincible and an unshakable assurance, which is, as you know, his point in those verses. Who will condemn? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will separate us from the love of God? He brings us to the mountaintop. He brings us to the peak of assurance. And the one who has rightly grasped the doctrine of justification will join Paul in that mountain peak. But then with God's purpose now in view, the question inevitably arises, what about God's purpose with respect to the Jews? Well, without going into any detail about this, this is what we find him answering in chapters 9 through 11. The purpose of God being introduced at the end of chapter 8. He begins to explore it in chapters 9 through 11. He's, he's answering the objection again of the Jews that perhaps God's purposes have failed with respect to them. Because it would seem that God was now rejecting the Jews. But he says God hasn't forgotten his purpose with respect to the Jews. He's still working out the same plan and the same purpose you find in the Old Testament, which he proves by various Old Testament quotations and especially highlighting the doctrine of the remnant. At the same time, having assured or reassured the Jews with that thought, he warns the Gentiles not to become proud. You remember what he says in chapter 11, verses 19 through 22. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God 
on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. He reassures the Jew. He warns the Gentile. And all of this, as he considers and reflects upon the purpose and the plan of God being worked out in history, all of history is resolved in another grand statement of praise. Another mountaintop where he says at the end of chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. You see, as Paul considers the purpose and the plan of God, as he begins to grasp it for himself and unfold it for his hearers and his readers, he doesn't feel satisfied in himself. He doesn't begin to congratulate himself for his glorious achievement. No, he wonders at it all and he simply praises God for his glorious purposes. And with this, he concludes the first major portion of the epistle, the doctrinal. But then very briefly. We might notice at the end in chapters 12 through 15, how he works out the doctrine, how he begins to apply it. And he does so in three main ways. First, he begins uh, by telling us of our general duty toward God in chapter 12. Then in chapter 13, he speaks of our duty to the civil magistrate, which was, we will see, especially a problem for the Jews. The Jews still longed for a theocracy. They still wanted to see the church and the nation as one. But that was not the way of a new covenant, Paul is saying. The Jews were to live as pilgrims in this world and to submit to the powers that be now that they were Christians. There was no contradiction with their place as the people of God and their place in civil society as citizens and subjects. But finally, he exhorts mostly, it would seem, the Gentiles in chapter 14 through the first part of chapter 15 to a spirit of love and charity in the church. So general duty towards God, our duty in society, and then our duty, our mutual duties within the church. That's the third heading of practice or of practical exhortation. He exhorts them, these Gentiles, to exercise their freedom in Christ in a way that took into account the scruples of some of their Jewish brothers who uh, were having uh, difficulty leaving these things behind. Scruples about meats and days and so forth. Things that you found in the Old Testament ceremonial law. And so we have in that final section a discussion about Christian liberty and the weaker brother. But let me just say about those three headings and practical exhortations. uh, Something which I think will become clear as we consider them. And that is all of them are applications of the doctrine of justification. Paul is not leaving them behind. He is still explaining and unfolding uh, that doctrine. In other words, he's answering the question, how is the justified believer supposed to live before God? How is he supposed to live in a hostile world? Which includes the civil sphere. And then how ought he to live and to work out that doctrine in the church where he's likely to find the weaker brother? Someone, in other words, who hasn't quite worked out the gospel so well as himself. All of those questions you see. Uh, He's answering and they have to do with the doctrine of justification practically considered. And in the end, once we've seen all of that and gone through the whole argument, 
we will have found as complete a picture of the Christian gospel and the Christian life as found anywhere else in Scripture. It contains, the book of Romans contains, says Haldane, an abridgment of all that is taught in Christian religion. And so I say to you as I introduce this book, let us look forward to studying its contents with this thought in mind. Amen. And let us now come to the table together.